Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Rosemary Candwell, the protagonist of Courtney Donnell's stunning debut, It's Not Nothing, wonders if she is redeemable. Her life is broken into waking and sleeping traumas, opiated with cough syrup, caffeine, and antipsychotic. She has nothing to anchor her to bring her relief, compassion, or safety. Left with only her interior monologue to ground her, Rosemary wanders through a life that feels alien and alienating. It's Not Nothing is a novel in fragments about a life in pieces, but Courtney Donnell's evocative and original voice asks questions that reach far beyond one very human existence into the soul of a society that would prefer not to see those that it casts off, that it considers not worth looking at or thinking about. Rosemary's Odyssey to outlast the gravitational pull of abuse and neglect and to teach herself again how to deserve an existence makes visible the invisible in our highly stratified society, often emptied of empathy. It's Not Nothing is a novel that demands that we recognize in ourselves the need for care and uplift and to think nothing less of those we pass in the dark and from whose faces we too often turn away. Courtney Donnell is the author of It's Not Nothing, a novel in fragments drawn from her experience of homelessness and recovery, and the forthcoming novel, Real Piece of Work, an art world satire that explores image craft and the unbidden toll of a life lived in persona. Her stories have appeared in the Alembic, Tahoma Literary Review, Southampton Review, and elsewhere. Courtney was also the winner of the 2021 Poets and Writers Maureen Egan Award, and she has been a grantee from the Hawthorne Fellowship, a McCall Johnson Fellowship, as well as residencies from Hedgebrook and the Gentel Foundation. Welcome to Burned by Books, Courtney. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. I want to start with Rosemary's kind of terrifying story. Her first-person narration pulls us really close to her and makes us feel everything that she feels. But it's also a story of endurance and a belief in self-worth that must come from outside society's visions of those who struggle. So I wonder, how did you first come up with Rosemary? And did you always envision her as a first-person narration? The making of this novel, and it was very much made, you know, written and then assembled, is is braided into my own experience of recovery. And in that way, uh, 
I wanted to write a first person novel in present tense that was um, that of a young woman responding. So in that way, uh, the disasters have happened. Um, the outcomes are here. And she is responding, learning, learning to live alongside all that's past um, for good, for bad, for ugly. And it also is really deeply tied to the, the real time experience of recovery, um, whether that's um, trauma recovery or substance abuse recovery of landing in a body um, for what maybe feels like the first time ever. Mm -hmm. Um, a real punishing quality of self-awareness. Um, and um, Landing in a body is such an interesting term. Is is that yours? I, I mean, I think so. I use it with my therapist often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re I really like it. I think it's a wonderful way to describe that. But I'm sorry I interrupted you. Oh, no, no. Uh, that's quite all right. I, I mean, it, it is, you know, somebody who is dealing with a, psych a psychiatric emergency, um, Dealing with real-time trauma recovery, uh, real-time substance abuse isn't quite living in their body. Um, uh, they're kind of haunting themselves. They're not feeling real and certainly not feeling possible. Um, and articulating that experience, I thought, could only be told in present tense. I think it's uh, the writer Alexander Chi who said that when you write in first person in present tense, it kind of like hypnotizes you it kind of casts a spell in a particular way um and so it enabled me not that guy is smart how oh, i know i know <laughs> i know um so many essays i return to like they are like sacred texts um, <laughs> um but uh but it it really it enabled me to kind of time travel in a certain way um and and write that that real time experience of just the terminal present moment, you know, being present but not really being all there. Um, yeah. And um, and so, the, also in that way, the, the, this reading this novel is to experience my astonishment at the picture that it made. Um, yeah. uh, the picture of a self becoming, um, the picture of a self moving beyond the kind of fixed state of re-traumatization, um, moving towards understanding and moving towards connection, too. I, I don't usually prompt personal histories when talking about fictions, but you've sort of opened the door for me a little bit. And so I'm going to walk in with your permission and, and say that because the book is is advertised as drawn from your experiences with, with uh, being unhoused and with recovery, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about how those experiences mirror or are distinct from from Rosemary's. Right. Uh, well, um, you know, I did I did grapple with that um, that positioning statement of whether or not you know this novel is is drawn from my experience. I, I did have that desire at one point for it to really just stand on its own with always that kind of ambient presumption that all first novels are what I have. I try not to say it aloud, but that's right. often my presumption. Oh my God, it makes yeah. sense. You know, your entire life has built up to the making of that work, you know? And so of course you're anyway, I I I did grapple with that. I did outsource it to my my therapist, um, <laughs> who was very much my first reader. Um, but ultimately, I think what I landed on was, you know, specifying that it was drawn from my experience, but not to the 
extent of this, 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 and this happened. Um, but more to to the point of of what I was describing, which is that experience of um, recovery through art making of um, a, a writer kind of becoming, you know, shifting from the verb into the noun, um, which was very much my experience. And then the novel too speaks to that in that um, it's not necessarily about what happens. It's about the the toll of what happens manifest within um, back to that matter of response, a young woman responding. Mm-hmm. Um I, I I don't really have qualms with, um, you know, discussing uh, all that's past. Um, but having having said that, though, I I I don't want necessarily to become a an as an fiction writer, you know, mm-hmm. um, as a survivor, as someone who was once unhoused. I have no qualms whatsoever with discussing these things, talking about them. I talk about them in the way that somebody would discuss maybe. Um, their health, if they have, you know, diabetes or experiencing hearing loss or, you know, likewise with mental illness, I talk about these things rather candidly. Um, But what interests me most is the ways in which those things, those autobiographical things, create these kind of grimy crawl spaces and bulwarked limits of identity, you know, Um, especially the elements of perception and denial and how that sex identity um so it yeah ultimately um it, it the the idea to um to establish that it was based on my um on my experience was one that i considered um uh thought about marinated on um but ultimately it you know it kind of is also um the idea of outsider art right like mm-hmm. there is a, a, such a place for outsider art and visual art the idea being art that's made outside of academia um with little to no instruction almost always having to do with mental illness in one way shape or form mm-hmm. um and i think i that's why i think i i consider this particular novel to be a work of outsider art in that it is just permanently braided into my own recovery my own emotional well-being um and um my 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 own dare I say, audacity in mm-hmm. in kind of making this work, you know, making this work with the intention that it was going to live in the world um, was really at odds with my system of self-belief um, that the way that which I had been conditioned to expect. Um, mm. And it's the optimism of, of art making. It's art, you know, seeing as a source of recovery, mm-hmm. articulating as a source of recovery. Um and I love that the optimism of art making. Yeah, I mean those you 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 show up for yourself every day, um, at your writer's desk, at your laptop, at your you know legal pad with your number two pencil. You know you show up for yourself, and you take those little steps, trusting that those little steps will build and cohere into something new. I mean, if that's not optimism, then like I don't know what are we even doing here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Um, I, I don't think there are many novels set in Providence, Rhode Island, which I think is a shame, and fewer still touching upon Pawtucket. I know these are your home turfs, but I think the niche cultural differences between Rhode Island and the rest of New England, and then the divide between these adjoining cities of Providence and Pawtucket, 
um, is a rich part of this novel. Could you talk about the importance of specificity of place in It's Not Nothing? Yes. I, I mean, I'm extremely interested in, in place-based fiction. Um, I'm not alone in that. I mean, th I think there's whole uh, lit mags that are dedicated to place-based fiction. But I think what interests me most is um, how place affects the way people show up in the world, the way they think about themselves and other. Um, um, Rhode I love being a Rhode Islander. I'm like about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and everybody else in Rhode Island. <laughs> Let's just be honest. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we all have this kind of like towny sensibility, right? Like <laughs> the the kind a kind of pride that in sometimes is indistinguishable from you know an overcompensating kind of pride that's based in inferiority. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I think I mentioned to you at some point, um, one of my favorite t-shirts is from Frog and Toad, a great gift shop in Providence. And it has a big picture of Texas. And then Rhode Island is is put in its uh, you know actual size within Texas. And it says, don't mess with Rhode Island either. Don't which mess I think, with Rhode Island either. <laughs> yeah, which I think gathers up both sides of what you're talking about there. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think one thing that makes it interesting are um uh is that everything's here you know um in terms of rural places what's left of farm communities um really affluent um towns neighborhoods um of course beach we got that for days but it just changes very fast you know um yep. it, ch it changes to the scale of of our little state here um yeah, how many minutes does it take to get to Wound Socket from Providence? And and you could not imagine a more different different universe than right. Wound Socket, right? And and you know, uh, it's all filled filled with these you know really interesting, vibrant communities. Um, like in Wound Socket, they speak speak a dialect of Quebecois that is like long extinct elsewhere um and it even shows up in kind of the english colloquialisms of the area like um you go to the cleansers and not the dry cleaner you eat popcorn oh, yeah. and not popcorn mm -hmm. um everyone is you know throwing their laundry down the cellar you know um and I, this where they get um accident room instead of uh er what's yes. name okay yeah yeah. And um, and it's like it just becomes built into the, you know, the fabric of of, you know, who we are. And of course, my experience is, you know, populated by um, class consciousness, blue collar um, upbringing, blue collar ways of being um, that is also kind of has the long shadow of Catholicism, to, you know, um, yeah. uh, and um, the myriad ways that that can show up in uh, a psycho the psychology of a person, of a family, back to perception and denial, you know, um, some of the stories that, you know, we, we tell ourselves by we, I mean, you know, like me. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, I'm, <laughs> you know, so we tell the our, royal we. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the stories we tell ourselves in order to, you know, bear kind of our station and and life, you know, has to do or had to do, at least um, in my experience, with misery as a right of adulthood. You know, um, learning to take a beating. Um, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes actually. And they're they're not, you know, it's 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 terrible. It's not prescriptive. I would never recommend that to somebody. But just like most stories that we tell ourselves in order to bear living in the world, it's not without its merits. You know, there is like a scrappiness, a grit, um, a tenacity uh, that keeps one foot in front of the other. Um, although without ever having to look behind you. <laughs> um, the terminal present moment. You know, my experience that, you know, the, the the weight of Pawtucket, which made me, you know, no matter where I go or or what I do, my birth certificate will always say born in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. <laughs> that, that's uh, Memorial Hospital. That's right. That's right. Um, RIP to Memorial Hospital. Yeah, RIP. Then it's in the Paw Sox. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. Going out for the Paw Sox, man. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, so at... So it's it it made me um, for good for bad for ugly and now where I live I live in Providence which is a really really interesting um, city I love it here there's definitely it is a small town city um, that it's the it, perfect size in a lot of ways oh it is you know it's got everything but you can walk it and you can bike it and yeah it's a walk certainly a walkable walkable city a bikeable city um, it's really um, rich in arts and in food um people can really let their freak flag fly here um but there are of course deep class divides in this city i mean no we didn't like invent that <laughs> it's got yeah, yeah, right. um, only in providence right doesn't right. happen in other u.s cities so. we alone are bearing the class <laughs> um, no it's it, but it's of course deepening you know and through the years i think they always in providence and elsewhere, they always call it the town gown um, mm -hmm. dynamic. You know the the impact of of universities, the impact of the culture um, surrounding universities, and what it maybe does to people who live here. Um, I myself have only ever had jobs where I was serving others, where I was serving students, where I was serving um, out of town out of towners and. Seems like in the past few years, the economy ideal to according to like the government or local government has been to shift in the direction of attracting outsiders while neglecting people that live here. And, you know, that kind of creates, of course, it creates an animosity. It also, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the one of the finest aspects of this city, which is the arts culture here. Mm -hmm, Everybody's mm -hmm. getting weird with it in Providence, you know, but like... Yeah, which isn't only connected to RISD. I mean, it's a lot of outsider art and oh, a yeah. lot of singular uh, artists, which I really loved about it. Right, yeah. And I mean, there was just so many um, kind of DIY communities of really, really eccentric, expressive art and music that was made up just of like hodgepodge of makers and like punk rock elders and you know uh, poets performance poets uh and yeah some art students too but mm -hmm. but um but 
the trouble is now is just like so many other cities, you know, all the artists and musicians can't afford to live here anymore. And yeah. It really just leeches the soul, the uniqueness that I so adore about this this town. Um, again, we didn't we didn't invent that, but um, but I also, I mean, as a writer, I'm a product of that community, that circle. Um, but as a noticer, not as a participant, um, mm -hmm. a spectator to the spectacle, which you know made me something think on the page, something a little different, like not um, a spectator per se, but maybe a spy, you know, kind of noticing mm -hmm. all the time. All um, good writers have to be spies, I think. Right, right, yeah. And also, you know, nothing surprises somebody who pays attention, you know, and so... Yeah. Um, it's a way of trying to try to be in the world, um, trying to bear limit, bear the weight of this, you know, particular moment that we live in. The, I, I want to talk about the form of the novel. Mm -hmm. To my mind, the fragmentation of the novel mirrors in, in a lot of ways the fragmentation of Rosemary's life, cut off from family and a constant state of flux with housing and work and indeed fragmented from addiction and recovery. And I'll use your term, you know, not having landed in a body quite yet. Uh, could you discuss the sort of form content interplay in the novel? Well, I mean, in terms of my forebears, you know, my literary forebears, I, I draw so much inspiration from real masters of short fiction. I'm really interested in concision and um, kind of compaction at the fragments, the way that sentences move within fragments, it really met the needs of, you know, what you were describing, which was that discomforting, terrible, punishing quality of self-perception. Um, and utilizing the, the white space on the page, though, to hold space, for lack of a better phrase, um, for contradiction, you know, having landed in a body or, or, or entering into that process, um, you know, Rosemary finds that there's not one person sitting behind her eyes, pushing buttons and pulling levers. There's a whole cast of characters behind her eyes. Um, they all have something to say. Most often they're all grabbing for the mic. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of a lot of what they have to say is conf conflicting, completely at odds with one another. Um, and in the process of her recovery, Rosemary is coming to or trying to understand that um, they're not all right and they're not all wrong. And again, that use of fragmentation um, really met the needs of the, the, the present experience of Rosemary, as she said, describing the water as she drowns. Uh, it also enabled me to lean into humor. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. A pivot, an abrupt pivot sometimes um yeah i didn't in my intro i i really failed to say that this is also a, a, a sometimes shockingly funny novel especially in its sort of dialogue pieces and you know its interactions between characters uh, are, are often funny even when it's about tough things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's like rosemary has a mordant wit She's whistling in the graveyard sometimes, it seems. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, again, to an extension of that quality of noticing, paying attention that we were talking about existing in this character. The idea that she's not she's not going to be surprised by anything. She's going to pay attention. She's going to name and claim the punches as she experiences them to maybe becomes less a joke at her expense and more her joke, more her 
kind of uh, like a way of reclaiming some sort of strength or or pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also like so much humor. I mean, wit wit is cold. Wit can, so it can be kind of cruel, but not for cruelty's sake. You know, I think humor in general, wit in general, is really born of a kind of tenderheartedness, you know, um, a sense of of having experience with time spent in the dark. And Somebody that's... told me that most good stand-up comedians are incredibly vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and even if you see something that looks like a, you know, a wall between them and and any bad feelings from from the audience, they are in fact drawing from great vulnerability and and often wells of of sadness and self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, working a wound, cutting yeah. alongside yeah. the wound, cutting along the nerve. Um, and sometimes the knife slips. <laughs> yeah. But it's 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 all it's all part of it. It's certainly part of my process. And it's um and it's the use of humor in the novel is also reflective of my experience just being a person, you know, the the idea of you gotta laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh not all the time, but enough of the time. Um, not to diminish, but to infuse some sort of darkness with humanity, uh, that wonderful, conflicting, like torturously beautiful experience of humanity. That, that was that was beautiful. <laughs> Um, I, I want to talk for a second about the correlation between uh, being unhoused and and being uncared for and and the social realities of poverty, recovery, and mental illness and how they sort of come together in, in various ways in the novel. And there's a moment, it, it it's an it's a moment I keep returning to and reimagining. And it's a moment when a woman staying in a shelter claims to be pregnant as a way of eliciting some sense of care from others in the shelter. When the lie is discovered, she's pilloried for it, but it makes sense to Rosemary as a desperation to be cared for. And I wonder what are the costs of not being cared for in It's Not Nothing and in the real world? And and how is this novel in a way a, a testament to the need to to be cared for. I I think that in this novel there are so many instances, not so many. There are enough instances uh, where where Rosemary has the opportunity to connect with another. She kind of recognizes it in passing. She catches a whiff of it, a sense of familiarity, a sense of um, security, not quite solidarity, but a. a an empathy that exists among especially women who are hurting aloud time and again in the novel she rejects that that opportunity that chance to connect with another person like sometimes abruptly deliberately rejecting it uh because what do you do um when empathy slams you up against the limits of your own self-belief your own kind of torturously recursive senses of shame, unworthiness, you're getting what you deserve, you know, how do you authentically connect with another absent that? And so the arc of the entire novel, at least my intention was that as Rosemary moves towards understanding, she also also moves towards connection as well. And it is not comfortable. It is, it is, there's no ease to it. And yet the un, there's an undeniable, an undeniability that she can't quite 
shape and meeting herself in another person, you know, mm-hmm. recognizing herself as all the more, you know, tender for seeing it in, a, in another person. And she at last kind of comes in contact with this way of participating in her own life that doesn't demand she participate in her own debasement, um, her own self-loathing. And I think that is the ultimate, you know, kind of uh, legacy or the long trajectory, I think, of being uncared for is, you know, the sense that something was done to you, you do it to yourself. And then there's also the chance that you will do it to other people, you know, victim becoming perpetrator. I don't mean in just the grand scheme of like, you know, love. predatory behaviors, but I mean it with a more yeah, yeah. subtle ways too. Um, uh, the way hurt people hurt people and kind of actively rejecting that becomes a source of resilience in, in Rosemary. Um, she becomes aware of her own resilience in the way she rejects that. And I wonder whether you felt at all when you were writing this, that there was something quintessentially um, American about the way in which the society seems more and more structured to place people in a in a context in which they find it almost impossible to be cared for right. because they're 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 swept to the side mm-hmm. uh, and and considered not valuable not productive mm-hmm. not whatever and I wondered if you you felt some of that when you were writing it Yes, I mean, there, Rosemary has a, a keen moment of of recognizing the kind of dance that she needs to do in order to be deemed worthy of care and compassion by others. There is a scene where she uh, goes to a coat drive at a local church and is kind of chastised by one of the women. Um, and it's implied that she's maybe a more affluent woman. The way that the woman kind of judges her based on her selection from the, the pile of coats. And, you know, to Rosemary's mind, she's choosing that coat so that she can pass. Right. Yeah. And it's not just about warmth. It's right. about passing. Yeah. She doesn't want to be seen as down and out. She's trying to, you know, re-enter the world. Um, it's the same with those shoes that yeah. she picks the, even though they're a size too small and she knows they're going to like be agonizing, but yeah. they are, they pass. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, in that scene, in that coat drive scene, um, you know, Rosemary has a moment of insight where she says, you know, it's an impossible dance that they demand of us to be worthy of care and concern, you know, like we ought to look down and out, but not too much. Uh, we ought to have some dignity, but be sure to use this money to buy some food, won't you? Um, and and don't, don't you watch a television? Right, right, yeah. And maybe it's, you know, I don't like rugged individualism or, you know, the kind of binary thinking that that, you know, creates the need to have an other. The need to have someone that you are abundantly not in order to see your successes as your own, completely oblivious to the set and setting and conditions and, you know, that create that success in the first place. That's mm-hmm. a whole other conversation. Yeah, um, that's a but, big one. It is, it is. But, you know, but needing needing to have an other and needing to have a sense of moral superiority or, you know, even just ambiently and it's funny because in my life, in in talking to people, 
I use the word unhoused. I understand the language change, the change in the discourse. I, I am on board with all of that. But when I think of Rosemary, I think of homeless. And I think how that really nails it because she's not just without shelter. She's without home, without, you know, anyone, anything that could help return to the kind of shore of herself. And I think even when she did have a roof over her head, she didn't feel at home in the world. So um, I just think that. Uh, she's at, that's wonderful way of, of making that designation. She's, she's without a home, even when she's not homeless. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And um, it, I think like it's, it, it becomes a slow recognition of that fact. I mean, I think there's a time in her recovery when she's in the shelter where there's an intense, almost self-loathing, shame-based pragmatism at play. Where like if she is to is she if she is able to accept what she's been told about herself, that is that she has no one to blame but herself. Um, she is living a choice that she could just unchoose. Well, then she'll unchoose it. She'll just hate herself. She'll carry that torch of shame. You know that will be so like. If she if she ever lowers it ever slightly, there's a chance it might happen again. There's a chance that what they say is true that she is irredeemable. So you carry that shame torch high. Um, it, it's it's again horrible, not prescriptive at all, but not without its merits because it did enable, enable her in that particular moment through shame, through self loathing, to get a job and like and just hate herself back to life and again like i hear what that sounds like but these are the the kind of dichotomies that are thrust on people that are forced to the margins you know they have to assume you know that horrible version of themselves that exists in the mind of minds of others you have to kind of, that kind kind of becomes your cross to bear because again like there's more of them than there are of you and who are you to say that that's not significant? It's heartbreaking. I mean, it's yeah, just yeah. it's absolutely heartbreaking, that kind of alienation from self and the world. It's homelessness. Yeah. One of the major questions of the novel is whether completely recovering from abuse, addiction, and poverty is, is possible. Rosemary thinks about how teeth do not recover in an addict, and it prompts her to wonder about which parts of herself, physical or emotional, will not be able to heal. What does this story do with the idea of what is not recoverable? I think in that particular moment in the novel that you're describing, she's trying to think, like almost appropriate a kind of quality of self-acceptance that, ex that accepts that she is irredeemable, that her nature is constant and that it's always going to make itself known. It's almost like her- An inherent like DNA or something. Right. Yeah, well, and it becomes almost a way of like bootstrapping, for lack of a better mm -hmm. phrase. She, she's going to take that on and act accordingly. And um, that acceptance might be what enables to, her to keep one foot in front of the other. As she recovers, as she, you know, uh, connects with a therapist, begins to understand, you know, the quality of her own mind, or at least open to all the the versions of herself within her have to say. She kind of moves away, not from irredeemability, but from the need to the idea that the wound is there to greater and lesser degrees, but the charge of it um, isn't quite as acute with time, with practice. Mm -hmm. All those steps build and cohere into something new. And 
I, I, um, as a Rhode Islander, I often think in ocean metaphors. <laughs> um, and it's, I think it's like riptide, you know, to swim out of riptide, you can't swim into it or against it. You have to swim alongside it until mm. you feel the charge of it lessen. And then you're able to safely make your way to shore. Um, and I think that becomes an apt metaphor for Rosemary's recovery, for my recovery, for, you know, learning to live alongside all that's past. There really is no other side to it. You're always just learning to live alongside it in all of the different ways um, that it maybe warps and contorts with time. Mm. But with enough practice, with enough remembering, um, you realize you have experience to draw upon. Like, oh, this emotional weather will pass because that's what emotional weather does. Like, just like the tide will come in because that's what it does. The tide will also go out. Um, and but the ocean still remains. No, no. <laughs> ocean stay gal for life. <laughs> Courtney, before I let you go, I'd love to know a little bit about what you've been reading recently and whether you have any recommendations you might want to share for our listeners. I do. I love that question. Um, I uh, just finished Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. Boy, howdy. It's... Would you explain, as somebody tried to explain what this is about, and it sounded so uh, oh. amazing, but also like incomprehensible. Will you tell yeah. me what it's about? I mean, so initially, the point of entry into this particular book, and Naomi Klein just is an amazing, you know, writer about social and economic systems. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the point of entry is that there, she has a doppelganger. She has another, another Naomi that she is often confused for. Uh, Naomi Wolf, who uh, was one time was a feminist writer about bodies and sexuality and now has gone. You She's know, gone like QAnon, right? Uh, like, full, <laughs> right. Yeah. Full tinfoil hat. And um, but because Naomi Klein is absolutely brilliant, that becomes a point of entry into, you know, thinking about duality, thinking about doppelganger systems, the doppelganger self, the idea of the other as a shadow self. And so she's not just articulating this and that as self and other. She's she's in, she's interested in the ways in which she like parts of herself or our self or our like leftist worldview is present in this kind of insanely right wing, you know, conspiracy theorist um, mirror world. She calls it the mirror world. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's absolutely brilliant. I recommend that if you read it, read it with a buddy that you could yeah. text in real time. Nice, nice. I love it. <laughs> while you're reading, um, because it is, it is just really, really um, so, it's so brilliant and shocking, but almost calming too because it's it's delivering some understanding or at least putting the pieces on the board for some kind of understanding that is a good is good medicine against hopelessness it really is what a fantastic All review of oh, that. i'm gonna stoke i'm, I'm in <laughs> also uh the story collection i meant it once by kate doyle absolutely brilliant i love stories that center friendships um the complexity of Friendships, especially among young women, it's just brilliant. It's so funny. People Collide by Isle, Isle McElroy. Um, I've heard a lot about this one. 
so good. Left me like existentially concussed in the best way. And uh, also, um, Tell Me One Thing by Carrie Schlotman. Love, love, love. We Were the Universe by Kimberly King Parsons. It's not out until May, but... Oh, I, I like her a lot. Oh, Black, you know, Blacklight was phenomenal. Her story collection from a couple of years ago. The novel is just like... It's like, a, it's a nice that catches the light, you know? Um, and I love that. Also, um, Attachments by Lucas Mann is an essay collection that's coming out in May about fatherhood. Lucas is you know, brilliant, sharp, funny, warm, compassionate, and it all shows up in the page. Wintertime is tends to be the season of rereading for me. I'm a big okay. rereader. Um I'm re rereading um re rereading Dear Friend from My Life, I Write to You in Your Life by Yeon Lee. In preparation for an event this spring, I'm rereading all the work of Emily St. John Mandel. And of course, you know, who is Emily... a blurber of yours, oh, which she is, is. <laughs> well, pretty she... awesome. <laughs> she is as kind as she is amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, so she has the the big ones that she's so well known for Station Eleven, Glass Hotel, Sea of Tranquility, but her first novel, The Montreal La... One. It's Last really Night in Montreal. So good. So oh, good. So yeah. Good. And uh, so I'm rereading that. And also, if you'll allow me, mm -hmm. Galley Gods, I'm sending it out there. If you <laughs> could please find it in your heart to send me Liars by Sarah Manguso, the novel that's Ooh. coming mid in mid-2024. Oh, that would just be, well, that would be everything. <laughs> what was what was her previous book that was a sort of, uh, it was in list form or fragment yeah. form? Oh, so 300 arguments. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, amazing. I mean, she's just a master of concision. Her first novel came out, I think it was in 2022, because she was doing poetry, um, kind of like prose. I mean, kind of just this ineffable, you know, uh, genre of just brilliance. But um, her first novel came out a couple of years ago called Very Cold People. And it definitely just cuts along the nerve of a New England experience, um, the experience of being from here, growing up here. But so, yeah, if I could, I'm, I'm willing it. I'm like, my hands are up. I'm willing the universe to to somehow get that, that galley uh, into my mailbox. You don't get any reps from her publisher. <laughs> I'm going to get you a... <laughs> You get you an ARC or a galley. <laughs> yeah, I would. That'd I would. be my repayment for your oh. great, great interview. So I would be forever grateful. Yeah. So, so yeah. The, also, that's a heck of a list, oh. <laughs> which I've, I've read only Kate Doyle. So I've got some reading in, in front of me. Well, see, you know, it's the slow season and, uh, Winter passes easier, to my mind at least, when you surrender to the rhythm of the season. Um, like when I try to keep just marching on, you know, un unperturbed by the weather, I or convincing myself that I'm unperturbed by the weather, it just no good can come of that. So when I surrender to the rhythm of the season, almost always involving deep reading, rereading, many blankets, um, <laughs> and a cup of coffee, I, I find that I'm able to enjoy the. I like this. This sounds like Huga. I don't know if it's still in in vogue to do the like Danish Scandinavian snuggle yeah. up with book, but I, I mean, I, that seems the only way to get through these kinds of winters. So. Cozy, cozy, cozy. Love it. <laughs> 
Um, well, thank you so much, Courtney. Yeah, I love this novel. It's not nothing. And I think everyone should read it. I think it's an important novel. I think it's a beautiful novel. And I'm, I'm really so pleased that we got to talk about it. Thank you. And that's so kind of you to say. I loved chatting with you and I'm so grateful to, to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Court McDonnell for coming on the show to talk about her debut novel, It's Not Nothing. You can find links to purchase It's Not Nothing and all of Courtney's amazing recommended new books and rereads at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.